We get used to using the story of the ancient Israelites as a negative example that we almost don't know how to respond here. But here they are doing it right. They are fighting for the presence of God. Think of the deal that they're turning down. God just said, I will give you power without the danger of my presence. Let me ask you something. Would you take that deal? Would you take the help of God against all your adversaries without the massive burden of all his moral demands? I wonder how many believers today would jump at that offer. But these people turned it down. They mourned. They considered this offer a disaster. And so they committed themselves to an extended season of humiliation and repentance. I think this might actually be the high water mark in Old Testament piety in terms of the nation of Israel. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. We do kind of get used to using the story of Israel as a negative example, particularly in the book of Exodus. They're always grumbling, always testing God. But here in this story, they're doing it right. After having done it horribly wrong in the incident of the golden calf, there is some encouragement in that here for us. It is possible to get it right even after getting it horribly and tragically wrong. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 33. The incident with the golden calf was unquestionably one of the low watermarks in the history of Israel. For a moment, it appeared as if the entire covenant project would be abandoned, or at least torn down to the foundation and reinitiated through the house and line of Moses. Moses made glorious intercession for the people of Israel, and as Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna wrote, Israel received a suspended sentence. The people are placed on probation. So that's where we left things at the end of chapter 32. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The wording of this paragraph makes it clear that while the potential death sentence mentioned in chapter 32 verse 10 has been averted, Israel has not secured a full pardon and an entire restoration with Almighty God. This has the feel of accommodation as opposed to reconciliation. They are no longer your people, Moses, but neither are they my people. God just refers to them as the people. So there has been some mitigation, but not absolution. There is still a very noticeable distance in these words. Previously, the angel that was promised was God's presence. But now God makes it clear that it is not. He says, an angel will go before you, but I will not. That's a new situation, and that's 
not a good situation. And everyone in the story is reading it that way. We see that in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So let's pause here. It is very clear that there is some kind of disaster going on here. In verse 4, the people received this as a disastrous word. So what exactly is being said here? Something horrible was being said and something horrible was being heard. Douglas Stewart puts it this way. He says, By reason of God's words, they knew that their God had partially rejected them and they felt the impact of this rejection. Close quote. Many Jewish scholars understand this as God canceling his commandment to build the tabernacle. He is saying, I will not tabernacle among you. Don't build it because I won't inhabit it. I'll send an angel to fight for you, but I will not worship and fellowship with you. If we fellowship together, we're going to fight because you are a stiff-necked people. If we build the tabernacle and I speak to you in the inner chamber, you are just going to thumb your nose at me in the outer court, and then I will consume you. That seems to be the sense of it. So the people feel that, and they respond admirably. We get used to using the story of the ancient Israelites as a negative example that we almost don't know how to respond here. But here they are doing it right. They are fighting for the presence of God. Think of the deal that they're turning down. God just said, I will give you power without the danger of my presence. Let me ask you something. Would you take that deal? Would you take the help of God against all your adversaries without the massive burden of all his moral demands? I wonder how many believers today would jump at that offer. But these people turned it down. They mourned. They considered this offer a disaster. And so they committed themselves to an extended season of humiliation and repentance. I think this might actually be the high water mark in Old Testament piety in terms of the nation of Israel. We jump back into the story at verse 7, and it is a bit of an odd transition, or at least it seems so at first. We're told that God's offer of a lesser presence, his offer of power without the obligations of presence, was rejected. And then we're told about this time of mourning and humiliation that followed. And, and then there is this detail here, something of an aside, wherein the tent of meeting is introduced and explained. Verse 7 says, Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, 
All the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So, as I said, this feels at first like an odd transition, but actually I think it fits realistically in terms of the slow movement of this story on the ground. This isn't a novel. This is an account of actual events. I think what we're being told is that while the people were mourning, Moses set up the tent, the tent of meeting. Moses needed to meet with God. Now, the tent of meeting was not the tabernacle. This can be confusing. Prior to the construction of the tabernacle, which has not happened yet in the story, which may not happen now in the story because of the golden calf, but prior to the construction of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was the place where Moses went aside to speak with the Lord. After the tabernacle was in fact built, sorry for the spoiler there, the tabernacle is sometimes called the tent of meeting because the tent proper at the center of the tabernacle complex was the new tent of meeting. So I hope that's not too confusing. The point is, while the people were mourning, Moses was seeking the Lord. And Joshua understood that the most important thing happening in all the universe was the conversation going on inside that tent. He knew exactly what hung in the balance. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here for a second if I can. I've listened to this episode of the program audio before. It seems to me like there are two main themes here. The value of God's presence and the experience of God's glory. We'll get to the experience of God's glory at the end of this episode, but I want to pause here and talk a little bit about the value of God's presence. Joshua is being held up as a positive example of someone who was addicted, basically, to God's presence. He got as close as he could, and then he wouldn't leave. He basically camped outside the tent of a meeting, and he refused to go anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. And then, as you say in the program audio, this is one of the rare instances in Exodus when the people of Israel as a whole are held up as a positive example, because they too, basically, see that they're not going anywhere unless the presence of God goes with them. They reject the offer of a warrior angel to fight their battles. They refuse to settle for anything less than the presence of God at the center of their lives as a community. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Why was the presence of God so important for the people of Israel? Well, the presence of God is really everything for people in the Bible. It's where the story begins, and it is where the story ends, and it is what we're trying to get back to for all the parts in between. In the beginning, God was present with his people. The Bible says that God walked with the man and the woman in the cool of the evening breezes. I mean, can you even imagine that? Can you, can you imagine being able to meet God at the gate of your house at 6.30 p.m. and just hmm. going for a walk around the neighborhood? Can you imagine being able to tell him about your day and, and get advice from him and just hear how he would do things? Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. It was amazing. And, and that was our original experience as human beings. Remember, human beings were supposed to be under God and over everything else. We were made in the image and likeness of God. So we were supposed to resemble God and represent God as his ambassadors over all creation. And so just like an ambassador today, we would we would have to talk to God to get an idea of his will and intention. And then we would go out and execute the plan. The whole design 
was based upon the assumption of access. But then once human beings rebelled against God, saying in essence, we want to rule over the universe without reference to God, once that happened, our access was cut off. That reality is indicated very vividly at the end of the creation story. After the fall, after the rebellion of the man and the woman against God, they're sent out from the presence of God to wander in the desert. And the Bible says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's Genesis 3, 23 to 24. So the man and the woman now are away. They are outside and they can't go back. An angel with a flaming sword makes sure of that. So in a sense, the the whole story of the Bible is about finding our way back to the presence and the blessing of God. And the tabernacle was kind of like a portal. It was like a stargate that opened a, a tiny opening, a tiny door, a tiny gate from this world to that world, the the world we left behind. Stargate. I remember that show. <laughs> Stargate SG-1. Yes. That was about a team of people who figured out how to open these gates so they could travel between one world and another, right? Yes. Well, in a sense, that's what the tabernacle was. And so here in this story, the, the creation of that Stargate actually hangs in the balance. The people have demonstrated that they are still rebels at heart. They don't love God's word as they should. And so why should they be allowed back? Why should even a sliver of access to that world be given back to them? But to their credit, the people know the value of what they've lost. And so they do everything they can to salvage this opportunity. Joshua has basically stapled himself to the tent wall, and the people are begging Moses to intercede with God on their behalf. They are desperate to open up even the tiniest of windows back to the presence and blessing of God. But this isn't the ultimate return of the presence of God, right? This is just like a small foretaste. Yeah, exactly. That's why on the cross, at the moment that Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. That symbolized, finally, wide open access back to the presence and blessing of God. Jesus is the stargate now. Jesus is the door that leads to a better world. And just so people don't think you're overstretching that metaphor a little, Jesus said that himself in John's gospel, didn't he? Yeah, he said that exactly. John 10, verse 9, he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is the ultimate door, the ultimate stargate that was prophesied and anticipated by the tabernacle. And if we enter by him, then we discover at the end of the Bible that we're right back in the world we thought was lost forever. Revelation 21, 1 to 3 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will will be with them as their God. That's it, right? I mean, that's literally the world we thought was lost forever. The world where God lives with us, where we can walk with him and talk with him and be his people, 
We can have that. We can get back to that through the door that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. That that is so awesome. Well, as I said, there are two great themes in today's episode, so we need to jump back into the program audio just prior to verse 12. Moses was seeking the Lord, and Joshua understood that the most important thing happening in all the universe was the conversation going on inside that tent. He knew exactly what hung in the balance. And now we get a sense of that conversation. In verse 12, we are told, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. So Moses understands exactly what is at stake. He has picked up on the cues in God's language. He says, God, you used an interesting phrase back there. You, you said that you will send an angel, but you made it clear that this angel was not your presence. That's not how you spoke before, God. You, you said before in Exodus 23, 21, that the angel would have your name in him. I, I understood that to mean that the angel would be you, that it would be the full manifestation of your presence with us. But now you're talking in a different way. And and so, Lord, I really need to know who or what you are sending with us, because if it isn't to be you, then we don't want it. Don't send us. We won't go. We only want to go with you. That's what Moses is trying to get across here. He carries on in verse 12 and says, Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. That's really good praying right there. As I said, you'll have to wait until the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament to learn higher and better things about how people should talk to Almighty God. This is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most important prayer in the Old Testament, and it literally changed the world. You can see that in verse 14. And he, that would be God, and he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. That's a game changer. Our Alan Cole says here, that means that the heavenly messenger sent with them will now be the angel of his presence, i.e. a full manifestation of God as in Exodus 23, 20, closed quote. So that's a huge answer to prayer. But Moses just wants to be sure. So he keeps praying, verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This reminds me of the prodigal son who had his whole speech prepared for the father, but he didn't get half of it out because the father wrapped his arms around him and smothered most of his very fine speech into his shoulder. God said, yes halfway through Moses' speech, before he even got to his best arguments. How good is that? Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. I, I don't need your best arguments, Moses. I made this decision on the basis of grace and love. 
Moses, however, is still seeking confirmation, partly, I'm sure, because he was aware of just how grievous this sin of the people of Israel was. Exodus 32 was a really big deal. The golden calf was a really big deal. And when you sin a really big sin, it can be a real struggle to believe that you have been truly and entirely forgiven. So Moses is seeking further assurances, and we can certainly understand that. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now, why would Moses be asking to see God's glory? Hadn't he already seen God's glory in the 10 plagues? Hadn't he already seen God's glory in the parting of the Red Sea? Hadn't he sat inside God's glory on the mountain when he was receiving the law and communing intimately with God during those 40 days and 40 nights? And, of course, the answer to those questions is yes. Yes, of course, Moses had seen God's glory in the past, but that was all before the golden calf. This, then, is Moses asking, will you go with us as before? Will you... Be with us as before, even though we have sinned so grievously against you. God answers Moses in verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God promises to give Moses the extraordinary assurance that he has requested. The actual theophany itself is recorded in chapter 34, and we'll hear about that in the next episode. What is interesting here is that Moses asks to see the glory of God, and God says in reply that he will speak about his name and his goodness. It is fascinating to notice how often God's people desire to see. Show us something. Don't make us listen, God. Let us see. Seeing is easy. Seeing is believing, we say. And yet, it is in fact visual representation of God that is expressly forbidden in the second commandment. And it was a desire for a visual representation of God that got Aaron and the people in trouble in Exodus 32. People want to see, but God tells them to listen. No one can see God and live. The sight of God would literally tear you apart. Even the faintest afterglow of God's receding presence, which seems to be what Moses got here, would leave a permanent mark upon your person, as it did to Moses. So be careful what you ask for. Until we get to heaven, our knowledge of God will come via careful attention to his word. Most of what Moses will experience here in the cleft of the rock will come by way of auditory revelation. After I have passed by and spoken... God says, I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. The Hebrew idiom here means to see virtually nothing, just the faintest receding glow. You won't see very much, Moses, but what you hear will literally change the world.
Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, you mentioned there at the end that we will get into the details of Moses' encounter with God in the next episode. But for now, could you explain to us a little more what you were saying about seeing versus hearing from God? Because I found that really interesting. It is really interesting. that It's interesting that the people of God always want a more visual form of their religion, particularly in the Old Testament. In fact, that's how they got into trouble in the last chapter. They asked Aaron to make for them a graven idol. They wanted a visual representation, a a visual focus point for their worship. And here Moses says, show me your glory. And what does God do? He speaks. He explains. He gives Moses a deeper word. I think there's something to that. And it is something that we very easily miss today when we read the Bible. In Hebrew, there's no word for obey. Did you know that? I did not know that. That's true. Instead, they use the word shema, which literally means to hear. Because in the world of the Bible, to hear is to obey. And that's what God wants from you. He wants you to hear his voice. He wants you to obey his word. Now, we always want to see. But right now, at this stage in our life, God wants us to hear we need to start there, even though we, we will probably never entirely suppress our desire to see. But seeing, according to the Bible, comes later in the process. Mm, all right, and I know we're going to talk more about that next week. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 